Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sovereign Stories podcast. Today, we'll be talking about a historical era for tribes from before the arrival of Columbus until 1787. Feel free to check out the YouTube video equivalents for this podcast, which is video number four. Today, we are discussing what it looked like for tribal nations leading up to colonization and the establishment of the New World. This topic is important because it illustrates what the actual impacts of colonization were on peoples who had their own interactions and histories suddenly upturned with this new contact from another part of the world. Too often we hear it from the Eurocentric side. Just look at the fact that we call this part of the world the New World. It insinuates that the common view is to see it as a novel thing, but to a Native American person it makes no sense to call this a New World. Yet it's the term New World written in history books, because it's not the indigenous peoples getting to tell their perspective of history. It's the newcomers who typically control that stream of information, education systems, and the national rhetoric in general. Certainly many Americans know, for example, that Columbus didn't truly discover something that was already discovered, but how many schools still teach in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue as a wonderful moment in American history? The first major misconception is that Columbus came to the United States. He actually never did. He's never been here. He he landed in parts of the Caribbean, like the Bahamas, and on the coast of Central and South America. Soils that still get classified as American, but not in the conflated sense a lot of U.S. citizens might see it as. And he did not discover something millions of people had already lived in for thousands of years. Besides, it's believed that the Norse had already been to parts of Canada many, many years before, their territories of Iceland being only somewhat removed from Greenland and the genetics of its people even containing some Inuit bloodlines. Perhaps the reason the story frustrates me a lot has to do with Columbus's ignorance. The guy thought he was in India because he was trying to get there, and the people struck him as non-white but not black either, so India, he says. They're Indians. That becomes American Indian when he realizes he's wrong, or someone realizes he's wrong, and not to be confused with Indian American. The West Indies, he says. But it's also the fact that so many people celebrate this guy for being brave and sailing over the edge of the world in his big fancy ships. He's a terrible navigator, but it's so worth mentioning because this upplaying and downplaying war between peoples in history is incredibly important. It is showing the way the narrative and rhetoric and history can be twisted to purport one side and not the other. Okay, so one example. There has been evidence that ancient people of the Maori and other indigenous Pacific regions have navigated to South America without getting lost, and in smaller ships, as there are plants and other evidence that might suggest trading. In fact, the Polynesian peoples from Hawaii, clear to parts of Australian continent, have been part of a kingdom across the water for many years. They even have been recognized historically and internationally as a sovereign nation until the U.S. overthrew Hawaii. But their claims can be refuted despite all other evidence of genetics and language and culture that they were able to travel so far. It's refuted simply because so-called archaic and indigenous peoples are often associated with less intelligence. And if, you know, Europeans can't do it as well, how could they? Although native Hawaiians have impressive seafaring skills, equipment, and amazing historical knowledge using stars to get around the world, it only becomes believable if some Italian dude sailing from Spain uses an astrolabe or something to get to the wrong part of the world to literally wash up on the shore on half a planet he didn't even know was there. Somehow that guy gets glorified. Here's another example. Although the Irish are viewed as white today, they weren't always treated in the same sense that they and other European populations were. Um, They were usually considered less than, different parts of time, or too tribal, etc. Same old, same old story we hear. Um, Different parts of the world, different parts of of history. 
but a long-running theory claimed the Irish originally came from maybe the Middle East, North Africa, via Spain, um, which does align with some of the traditional stories that have been reported. Ultimately, they migrated from Spain, but not on boats, as the legends may say, but instead by foot many years ago, according to scientists, walking across the English Channel and the Irish Sea when the water levels were lowered. This theory truly works to dispute indigeneity claims as well as intelligence. Because in those times, the forest would have been so thick and taking a new boat would be far faster, plus studies have actually since debunked the theory that the water levels were ever so low that the Irish could have voyaged that way by just walking across. I use these illustrations to demonstrate how much narrative can be enforced to perpetuate a bias, even when science screams that it's wrong. And I also use that example because it very much parallels with the example that's being tossed around in recent times with the Bering Strait theory in the Native American peoples. So if I can walk you through an indigenous perspective of colonization process in early stages, especially in the U.S., let what I said sink in and then let's forget about Columbus for a while. What did pre-colonization look like? So there's a book that some love and some have issues with it, but it's called 1941, New Revelations of the Americans Before Columbus, and it's written by Charles C. Mann. He gives some insight as to why mainstream society should stop seeing indigenous peoples as equal uh, to being backwards or inferior. Indigeneity doesn't mean less than, is his point. He also emphasizes that there are many other words, and there still are for parts of America, that America itself is a colonizing title, to call it that. You know, everybody has their own words, not only for Earth and where they live, but in their own languages as well. And there is no doubt that people lived here before European contact. But the figures scientists have over how many were here and in what years, those vary greatly. And man believes the highest numbers estimated are likely the closest to the actual population counts. And it is true science tends to underestimate claims of indigeneity title of any kind, so that fits the pattern. Similarly, and for the same reasons, man thinks indigenous peoples have been here far longer than others believe. It's worth mentioning that in the same vein, the migration theories often proposed can be offensive for a few reasons. So this is again sort of aligning with some of the Irish theories. For one, they might outright contradict a religious belief, maybe a little like telling someone their religion is wrong because some atheist perspective is the true one. Not quite the same, but I only use that example to illustrate controversies over origin stories around the world. Another problem is a justified fear that such theories are used only to undermine indigenous rights and land title claims. It seems like so much science is driven around a way to disprove aboriginal claims that, unless a theory is fully burned out, people will still try to prove something until the evidence is damning more than it is controversial and therefore fulfilling their own agenda. I bring up man's work, though, because of how he stresses against the uncivilized, savage, backwards narrative often associated and perpetuated against indigenous groups the world around. Rather, he points out that the people are a part of the landscape and they have shaped it. Recently, on a Pollination Magazine podcast on indigenous-centered topics regarding coronavirus, we discussed how the narrative of environmental reclamation due to limited activity seems to scream, people are the problem and the world is better without people. But... That's a dangerous narrative. Indigenous peoples are indigenous because they rely on land closer than so-called civilized groups who try to take advantage of it. The fundamental difference between the two can therefore be seen as ecological intelligence or lack thereof, if you put it in that point of view. It's also important, man argues, because one, painting people as savage justifies destroying their cultures, and two, by removing their traditional relationship with the land, 
then their ability to properly care for it is inhibited and certain species face either endangerment or overpopulation, some imbalance, etc. Another thing in a broad stroke to remember is how many different indigenous peoples were impacted by a variety of colonial governments over the years. So not every experience was even the same, cultures aside. The Spanish, French, English, Dutch, there are many who invested in basically taking control by whatever means they individually justified and by whatever convictions they held about the affected peoples, although to be honest, relationships with some countries were far better than others. Now, we are left with the Canadian First Nations, tribal nations in the U.S., and then there's groups in Mexico without political standing in a caste system, and, and all across under the long, deep-rooted trauma of the caste systems based on race and whether or not you're mixed and with what. Depending on what luck of the gamble a group drew, basically, their future varied greatly in how colonial government infiltrating them would or would not respect their sovereignty and their existence or just flat-out commit genocide. In what would become the United States, the first permanent European settlement was St. Augustine. It's a Spanish fort established in present-day Florida in 1565. In 1598, many Pueblos were encountering the Spanish, and settlements in Santa Fe were present by 1609. For perspective, Jamestown, Virginia was settled just two years before in 1607. The early 1600s already sees people from France, Spain, England, and the Netherlands across the eastern seaboard. We hear now of the wonderful... Thanksgiving stories from these colonies, stories of how the indigenous people saved the European people in hardships, but those stories leave it at, oh, we were good friends and it's beautiful. And they leave out the betrayal just a generation ahead, the massacres, the genocide committed by these Europeans against indigenous peoples, a serious betrayal of allies, and yet it's always the indigenous peoples, the Native Americans, that are painted as the savages. It's most likely just because, in reality, they were seen as enemies of the American project. I think one of the hardest things to try to understand is the perspective of anyone in that time. I mean, if I'm nice, I'll look at how poor Christians from Europe felt. They probably truly believed the way they were told to interpret the religion they followed. They probably really felt like it had the truth and that they were sophisticated. It doesn't justify their attitudes or their behaviors, but it helps to explain their convictions as they, in their minds, justified what today should be seen as atrocities in this country. New England, due to religious attitudes, became increasingly violent as we lead into the Pequot War of 1634 to 1638. The Spanish manipulated various eastern tribes in order to oust the Pequot and seize their lands. Then from 1643 to 1645, the Dutch settlers who came to New York fought Cape's War against the Delawares and killed hundreds of people. But the deadliest conflict would, in this region and in this time, be King Philip's War. In 1675 to 1676, the English allied with other tribes yet again, trying to wipe out the Wampanoag Confederacy, and their leader, Metacom, known by the English as King Philip. So to put it into perspective, the fatality of King Philip's War, a European-sponsored seizure of indigenous land from the very allies that had saved the first colonists, the fatality rate was higher than the Civil War would be one day in the United States. Not only were colonial and Indian towns destroyed in the warfare, but political tensions, of course, only worsened significantly, and we're not even 200 years out from Columbus's landing. But it should be remembered that tribes were actually brute forces in this era. They may or may not have the same weapons, although many had obtained guns and trades, but they were also skilled, knew the terrain, were physically extremely fit, generally speaking, of course. 
based on the nature of their lifestyles versus those that they fought. Then being allies with the tribes was an incredible advantage. Countries wanted these allies because they recognized their power. Each tribal nation had its own agenda as well, and usually that also meant not making more enemies, but utilizing European forces to take out historic enemies that the forces might have in common, like other tribes. It was all about strategy and on all sides truly. It was really just war, as war is between nations. Newcomers, therefore, in the 1700s wanted tribes on their side, especially the powerful ones that long dictated the trading and the affairs of the nations around them. But the colonists typically had horrendous hygiene. They had gained some immunity through their genetic selection, as after centuries of plagues and illnesses, typically associated with their terrible practices of sewage disposal in close quarters, meant the survivors had certain advantages when the same diseases were transmitted to the Americas. It's often stated as if Indians were merely weak, but isn't it interesting how highlighting certain failures of European society actually paints a different light and alternate perspective on the disease death rates of indigenous peoples? Of course, why would the anti-European perspective be popular? Whatever the real truth, in 1701, it was reported that over half of the Carolinas' indigenous population had been killed by a smallpox epidemic, and that disease carried swiftly as far as the plains. Simultaneously, thousands of colonists were pouring into coasts and pushing westward and introducing diseases that had never been here before. In 1664, nearly 40 years before this time, the English had managed to evict the Dutch from New York. Across the next hundred years, in 1763, the French were shoved out of the Northeast during the French and Indian War, or the Seven Years' War. Some people believe the Iroquois Confederacy of Tribes had such a powerful notoriety that they could have alone determined the fate of the war. Because they had sided with the British, it's believed had they chosen differently and sided with the French, the United States would be a French-speaking country with French as its first language today. King George III of England, grateful for the alliance with the Iroquois Confederacy, he issued a royal proclamation to prohibit colonists from taking Indian lands without the British government's explicit consent. But this is a common theme. Paper promises, just like paper promises of water shares. The water may not come, but on paper it is owed. Well, the protection never came, but on paper it was a gesture. Instead, the colonists outright ignored the proclamation, took what they wanted, fought tribes for lands who should have had legal protection, but no law enforcement on behalf of the crown ever showed up. Again, it was the Christians and the savages. That theme would continue throughout, well, it never really went away, it just kind of changes forms. By the time of the Revolutionary War, tribal nations didn't want another conflict. They didn't want to be involved with this European BS that never did them any good. Yet despite wanting to be out of it, the colonists in all of their rage destroy the towns, the homes, and crops of Indian peoples and nations to somehow convince them not to side with the British. Not really sure how that would have discouraged me, but that was a strategy of intimidation. Pequots, remember, the King Philip's War, the Pilgrims, all that hypocrisy, well, they joined the American struggle. They helped them. And half of those who joined the war, helping the Americans that committed massacres against them, half of those Pequots died for the cause. Like, seriously, think about that. It's really insane, all the injustices. Another thing that should be mentioned is how proud Americans are in their so-called democracy. I've heard Americans say that tribes are savage and 
only fought each other and had no political intelligence. But on the contrary, the U.S. Constitution is largely derived from the Iroquois Confederacy's sophisticated democratic structure. The Confederacy continued to make treaties, including with the U.S., and the U.S. continued making treaties with all tribal nations, showing at least some degree of political respect for autonomy despite religious bias. But over and over, the reserved and supposedly protected rights of these first peoples would be ignored, trampled, manipulated, and otherwise abused. Things that should be viewed as crimes. America expanded its power greedily, never suffering the same punishments other countries would today should they do something so horrendous to somebody else. If you like this discussion today, watch the animated version on YouTube, as I mentioned earlier, video number four on our channel. I'll look at delving into some other topics, like the importance of treaties in the next podcast. If you like this content and want to see more, please consider supporting it on patreon.com slash sovereignstories. As always, be sure to subscribe, provide feedback or requests, and share this channel so we can all be on the same page. Miigwech.